Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 99. You've probably heard of this one before. Yeah, yeah, because you have. These are actually all three movies, <laughs> I think, this week are titles that everybody's heard of. Um, yeah, even and you if, probably should have seen at least a couple of these. Yeah, especially if you're listening to movie podcasts. Right. Um, if but even even if you don't listen to movie podcasts, these are probably ones that you have uh, heard of before. Um, and it's kind of almost like a grab bag of films that we should really talk about on the podcast. And they all have pretty storied productions and are really significant to film history. They're all from like the golden era of uh, the studio system, uh, like all three parts of it, the beginning, yeah, right. the uh changing middle and then the messy end of the early 60s um the last one kind of being like one of the last gasps of the big studio system um but this one should be full of interesting trivia interesting facts if you're into older movies if you're into the classic hollywood era this is the episode for you especially if you like classical romance uh, yeah, these all fall in the the kind of um, arca genre, as we like to call it, of romance. And more specifically, uh, which I didn't even think about before going back into all these movies, is that they're all tragic romance. They are so all there's tragic even, romances. They're there's even tragedies. that thread. Yeah. 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 When was the last time you saw a studio put uh, this much money into a tragic romance? Like, I mean, like not at all. <laughs> yeah, like West Side Story. So, mm-hmm. more or less, maybe maybe Love Story, but even Love Story from the seventies is like kind of like a scrappy outside production. Um, although even one of our movies today is kind of an outside production. Anyway, we'll get all into all of that. There's literally so much to talk about today that yeah. we're going to have to cut ourselves short at some point. But let's dive into it. The first movie we're going to talk about today is Gone with the Wind from 1939. Uh, adapted from the 1936 novel by Margaret Mitchell of the same name. The rights to that novel were purchased like six months after it was published by David O. Selznick uh, for like $50,000. Wow. This is still the highest grossing movie of all time when adjusted for inflation. About $3.4 billion. Um, So suck on that, Avengers and DC. Avatar. Avatar. (laughs) Uh, Avatar hasn't been the top grossing movie for almost 10 years now, and we still talk about it. Um, yeah. It was directed by multiple people, which, ironically, not the only movie to do that today. Uh, Victor right. Fleming and George Cukor. We've already talked about that a little bit on the Cougar episode, um, and we'll get into why later. It's produced by David O. Selznick, which is important. This is the golden age of the Hollywood producer. Um, it won a... So many Oscars. Uh, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, the first ever Oscar for an African-American. Ironic, considering it's Gone with the Wind. Uh, Best Director, Best Writing, Best Cinematography, Color. Uh, Remember, it's really weird for color movies to come out. Um, Weirdly enough, Victor Fleming directed both Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, both of which came out in 1939, both of which revolutionary for their use of color which is mind-blowing. 1939, also just like a huge year in general for movies. Like, Mm -hmm. it's one of those movies. This, the two that stuck out to me are 1939 and 2001. And I don't know why, but they, both those years have just like a bevy of amazing movies that come out in them. Um, Yeah. 
This was also, oh, it also won, sorry, I didn't even finish the list. Uh, best Art Direction, <laughs> Best Film Editing, Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Actor. Another Best Supporting Actress nomination, this one for Olivia de Havilland. Uh, best Sound, Best Special Effects, and Best Music. Um, <laughs> what's the next movie we're talking about today, Jonathan? Uh, you know, a little movie called Casablanca from 1942, uh, based on an unproduced stage play called Everybody Comes to Rick's, but only kind of in the fact that that play is about a bunch of uh, people who all gather at this uh, cafe in Casablanca. Um, it was directed by Michael Curtis, um, and we're going to talk about him. Curtis? Okay. Yes, he's he is a Hungarian uh, Jewish immigrant. Yeah, yeah, which is really important, especially for this story. So we'll get into all of that. Uh, and this film won Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Writing. Uh, and it was nominated for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Cinematography, Black and White, and Best Film Editing, and Best Score. This episode may take the cake for just like total Oscars uh, combined of movies in oh, one yeah. episode that we've oh, ever done. Yeah, no, this is this is a wallop of an episode. Uh, yeah. Just wait till the next one. What's it's that, Alex? The uh, West Side Story from 1961, adapted from the 1957 Broadway musical more directly. But obviously, anybody who's seen it and has taken a middle school English course in the English-speaking world will quickly tell you that this is inspired by Romeo and Juliet by one William Shakespeare. Um, and fun podcast fact, Alex and I studied Romeo and Juliet together because we went to high school together. <laughs> oh, we did. We did. Was that the year we actually had English together? Yeah, that was in. Uh, well, I won't even say, but yeah, that was yeah. our that was our English class. Uh, the the teacher I fought with all the time. Yeah, she. That was. Uh, we had some some interesting uh, conversations in that class. Um, uh, yeah, that's. But fine. you also saw the Princess Bride for the first time in that class, I which did. I got to witness. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was important. Um, and this There's one a little was personal trivia. Also directed by two people, uh, Robert Wise, uh, also known for the Star Trek movie, which is an interesting comparison to West Side Story. Um, and Sound of Music. And, and Sound of uh, Music. Uh, also, a movie we've done on the podcast before, The Day the Earth Stood Still. So he is wide-ranging director. He's like yeah. the John Favreau of the 60s. Um, and The Haunting, which I've never heard anyone talk about, but it's a really great horror movie. Have we not done The Sound of Music on this podcast? Nope. Oh, that gosh. could go right on this list. Yeah, There's so many, there's so many movies. Um... Of course, the other director on this is Jerome Robbins. We'll get into, obviously, there's just any production before, like, the modern era where there's production teams, like, two directors who just always work with together. Uh, there's a story. And we'll get to that when we get to West Side Stories uh, breakdown. Uh, but Jerome Robbins is the other director on this project. This one won Best Picture. Best, I think all three are Best Picture winners today. Uh, best Supporting Actor. But that's the first time this has happened since Oscar bait. Um, yeah, that was episode or season one. All three of these are pretty significant in different ways. Um, oh, yeah. Best picture, best supporting actor, best director. First time that award was ever shared um, at the insistence of Robert Wise. Um, best cinematography, color, best art direction, best costume design, best sound, best film editing and best score. Which, oof, I mean, all of these are like in the top 10 movies of most Oscar wins ever. Probably top five. Um, oh, yeah. And it was also nominated for Best Writing. Um, adapted. 
yeah. So that is the overview. It's a long overview, <laughs> just because there. Uh, these are some some hefty movies, some uh, consequential movies in film history. So let's get into the nitty gritty of them. Jason, set up Gone with the Wind for us. Gone with the Wind from 1939. In the final days of the antebellum American South, young socialite Scarlett O'Hara is shocked by the announcement that the man she loves, Ashley, is now engaged to another woman. Saddened and with a penchant for scandal, Scarlett quickly makes waves within the social world of plantation owners, even meeting and flirting with the roguish Rhett Butler. But everything changes when the war begins. Quickly, Ashley is yanked away, leaving Scarlett in a loveless marriage to another man and with an idealized version of Ashley dominating her mind. Through the hardships of the war, she continues to run into Rhett, and he soon falls in love with her, but the feeling is far from mutual. Eventually, the war ends, and Scarlett is left to try to rebuild what she can of her life, never giving up on Ashley, and all the while, Rhett Butler never giving up on her. All right, Jonathan, let's talk with, about Gone with the Wind. Uh, one of the longest movies we've ever done on the podcast, possibly longer than the David Lean movies at almost four hours long. It's like three hours and 40 minutes. But nothing will top Hamlet for a very long time. Hamlet is a different story altogether. Yeah. Um, anyway, this is one of the most storied productions in Hollywood history, almost from the time that David O. Selzin bought the rights in 1936 to the time the movie came out in 1939, the end of 1939. Um, this movie was in the tabloids. It was, uh, it took two years to cast both the leads, uh, Clark Gable kind of against his will. Although everybody else was like, this is obvious. We want you to play, uh, we want you to play Rhett Butler. He kind of had to be talked into it. Um, the more storied, Casting, though, is Scarlett O'Hara, which who is played by Vivian Leigh in the movie, an English actress, which is an interesting choice considering how quintessentially American this movie was considered yeah. at the time. Although Deep South America, the way it was connected, like the way they framed the South in this movie as being like, you know, cavaliers and nobles, kind of like a bastion of the old world in the new world. Um Makes It almost kind of makes sense that they cast an English actress in that role. Um, but anyway, it took a while to find Scarlett O'Hara. Every actress in Hollywood pretty much wanted to play the part, except for Betty Davis, who was the first choice by David O. Selznick and who promptly turned, turned it down. Um, Catherine Hepburn, even at one point, like demanded to play the role. She was like, I'm clearly Scarlett O'Hara. I think she could have been a good Scarlett O'Hara. But it wasn't the case. Uh, David O. Selznick literally told her, I can't picture Rhett Butler chasing you for two years. Um, oh, ouch. Yeah, no, it, it was, that was harsh. Yeah, this is uh, producer power trip uh, era in Hollywood. Uh, but there was even a national casting call at one point in which 1,400 unknown uh, actresses from across America uh, auditioned for the role. Um, but eventually it ended up being Vivian Leigh. Uh, who got the who got the call and who filled the role um, and this is an interesting movie that one of the reasons the production is so interesting is because it was so publicized and this is one of the more like advertised movies earlier on marketing campaigns for movies weren't really a thing when Hollywood started like they had kind of had to become a thing um, Howard Hawks played a big part in that because uh, he was 
you know, kind of an independent producer in an era where there were no independent producers. Same thing mm-hmm. with David O. Selznick, independent producer in an era where there were no independent producers, except for one or two very successful ones. Um, so everything about this movie was highly, highly publicized. And the anticipation and the hype, as we call it nowadays, uh, was super high during the production of this movie. Um, so it's interesting because Selznick, we're talking about studio system films, but this isn't really a studio system film. Um, it's a Selznick film, uh, which is, is, is both half in, half out of the studio system. And of course, partway through, they changed directors. Yeah, actually pretty early from what I understand. I think that uh, uh, George Cukor was on for about two weeks um, and he had some uh, issues with Clark Gable. There's some kind of uh, muckraking information out yeah, there that I found about why that might have been. Yeah. Um, but uh, ultimately, Clark Gable kind of uh, got Cukor kicked off of uh, the show. But uh, Vivian Leigh and... Um, and Olivia de Havilland. And, uh, yeah, Olivia, that's right. Um, they... Loved working with George Cukora, and for more information about George Cukora, go back to our um, Hepburn versus Hepburn episode um, about uh, My Fair Lady and um, the Philadelphia story because we talked about how George Cukora was seen as, quote-unquote, a women's director. He was very good at uh, directing women and um, speaking to them in a way that they understand in order for them to be able to uh, get the right emotions and all that thing across. So uh, a lot of the female actors in this film were so attached to George Cukor that he would coach them uh, for months even after he was kicked off of the film and um, yeah he had gone he had actually Victor gone Fleming was, through, was directing he had actually gone through two years of pre-production on the movie oh yeah he covered all the pre-production yeah. and then just barely into the production process yeah um, it was uh, it was kind There's of actually brutal. a third director on this movie too because at some point Victor Fleming uh kind of like got burnt out for a little bit. And so um, uh, Sam Wood stepped in for uh, a couple weeks and did a little bit of the directing as well. Um, oh, that's so there's like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that goes into this movie. Like, and I can like totally see this movie being one where like the director just like at some point has had enough and he's just like, I need a break from this. Someone else take it for a little bit and I'll come back and finish it up. Well, yeah, this is, uh, there was a director on this movie. Well, many, uh, but this was a this was a Selznick production. Um, one of the things they had at uh, one of the museums on the UT campus where I went to school uh, was a bunch of the production notes for Gone with the Wind, um, and there oh, are cool. just tons of notes by Selznick about demanding tweaks here, there, there, here, here, there, um, which go- flies in the face of auteur cinema, like this this idea that gets embraced around the mid-century. Um, but, you know, this definitely was the era where certain Hollywood producers had that power. They could make the yeah. movies the way they wanted. Um, and even though they weren't in the artistic position, they were in the uh, kind of business management position at the top. They did a bit of creative uh, creative work being handed down to everybody else on the production. And yeah, it is and, I mean, a big production. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is uh, that like especially for a producer to be working on a film this huge like you I can see why he would want that much control because he has a lot of stakes in this movie. If this movie didn't become 
what Gone with the Wind is now, then that that probably would have been the end for uh, for Selznick Productions. Yeah, but he, I mean, he goes on to do a lot of really important stuff. Um, he is maybe he takes a little bit too much credit for this, but he is partially responsible for bringing Hitchcock to America. Uh, yeah, they did a lot of work together. Collaboration on Rebecca. Um, he's also he. I, I like that he's clever with the way he fits Selznick Productions into things. Like in Rebecca, it's like on a diegetic sign at the very start of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's his. I think that's his studio. Uh, 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 what's it called? Like logo thing? Because that happens in pretty much all the Selznick yeah. pictures that I've seen. Yeah, yeah. He's he's pretty clever about that. He's he's a terrible. Terrible, terrible, you know, kind of like dictator, collaborative, dictatorial, partner. like abusive, uh, collaborative partner. Um, and he's definitely one of the reasons why, you know, uh, you're talking about how women like to work with George Cukor, um, partially because they felt safe around him, uh, because of his sexuality, uh, because there were so many men like Selznick who would rampantly abuse their power over women in the industry to either, you know, date them um, or control their careers uh, or just to exert influence over them. Um, so we're seeing a lot. Essentially, the thing to take away from Selznick directly is that he just had so much power, um, which is kind of like an aberration in the studio system for that to exist outside of a studio. Um, but it, it is it is quite interesting for the time and to make one of the most profitable films of all time arguably the most successful producer of all time. Yeah, right. But let's let's talk a little bit more about the movie itself and a little less about the production behind it because we definitely covered that. What do you think about the use of color in this film, Jonathan? Uh, well, this is definitely a Technicolor extravaganza. Um, like, it, it was really... It was so vivid and vibrant, especially for a film like so early in the the color process. But I mean, you think of this and uh, like you said, Wizard of Oz, which were both kind of like made to show off Technicolor, um, I'm assuming, because they're just like packed so much into it and they really show. Uh, because, again, we've talked about how, you know, at this point in the uh, the Oscars, Cinematography awards are broken down into color versus black and white cinematography. And we've talked about uh, colors for comedy, black and white is for drama. This is definitely a drama film. And it's kind of uh, an example of how color can be used in drama uh, and be used really effectively um, in order to achieve those goals. And just showing like all of the uh, all the outdoor shots and the lavish um, indoor set decoration and all of that. Um, it's really gorgeous. Oh yeah, no, it is absolutely gorgeous. And everything is done to the max, right? Like there's there's a million extras. There's, uh, these huge, huge, you know, landscapes and shots, these big sweeping sunsets with silhouettes against them, which is one of the signature like motif shots used and reused in the film. Um, Obviously, you know, everything's just done up big. The mansions are big. Like, it feels like they built... I tried to find out. Uh, I didn't find it this time. But it feels like they built that entire house. Um, oh, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure they did. <clears throat> both to shoot in. Uh, and there's a yeah. lot of shots that, you know, typically would have been a rear screen projection. 
but just weren't. Like, they just did it because they were like, oh, we actually have all these extras. Let's throw them behind there and then do it. And then when it gets to a point where it's technically limited, specifically I'm talking about a point where Rhett Butler picks up Scarlett O'Hara in Atlanta while she's working at the hospital and drives her around in his cart for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts off as, we have enough extras, we don't have to rear screen projection this, and then they want to get the good dialogue and the good stable two shot, so then they move to rear screen projection. Um, yeah. But if the like mic technology had been there, they probably would have just, you know, done it for realsies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, I mean, there are scenes like, yeah, like like you're saying, I'm assuming most of this film is shot on um, one of the the big Hollywood backlots, but there are some like really impressive uh, set pieces, like the um, the conflagration when um, that town. Uh, I think that was when they're in Atlanta. I'm trying to keep all four hours of this story straight. Um, <laughs> where where the uh, um, the union comes in and is burning the town down and just like all that red, uh, in the background and then mixing the red of the fire with the red of the sunrise and all of that stuff. It's just so, so well done. Oh, very, very, um, question, Jonathan, cause this kind of bugged me while I watched it. Okay. What do you think about the way the plot breaks down in terms of percentage occupied within the movie? Like, because about an hour and a half of this is the war. And then about two hours is post-war. And I feel like the post-war stuff is exceptionally less exciting than the war stuff. Well, that's... I mean, that happens at the, the intermission break. Like, that's that's basically the exact breakdown, right? It's close. It's close. But I'm, I measured it. It's almost two... is an hour and 40 minutes of, of war... And it is two hours of post-war. Okay. I don't think I was thinking of it in those terms because, you know, at the point where um, she gets uh, back to Tara and decides that she's going to, um, you know, never be hungry again and stuff like that. Like, that's the... That's the emotional breakdown of the film, but I think it coincides exactly with those that breakdown that you're talking about with between the war and the post-war stuff. Um, and so, I mean, most of the like drama happens after the war. So it's it's interesting because there there's the more exciting stuff at the beginning, and then like all of the culmination of the of the romance happens at the end. Like the that first part before the intermission is almost all prologue to uh, the the downward spiral that happens in the second half of the movie. It is intensely a prologue. It's just a very, very long one. Yeah, because um, yeah, objectively, this is supposed to be the story of uh, the growing up of Scarlett O'Hara, I think, like her coming into herself. Um, kind of, but it's a tragedy. I, I was thinking about. It doesn't about, feel like that, though. Like I feel like I because because she doesn't. Like, that's the summary, and no, she never gets better. <laughs> yeah. So okay, this she is, just keeps getting worse. Yeah, yeah. So I had not seen this movie before, by the way. So Wait, this really? Is, yeah. I this is the first time I sat down and watched all four hours of this movie. So first of all, I'm trying to keep the story straight in my mind. Um, but second of all, I kept thinking about. Um, 
Citizen Kane while I was watching this movie because it was, it's one of these things where she is so set on this one thing uh, that by the time she realizes that that's not what she wanted and what she wanted she had the whole time, it's too late. And I think that's kind of what it gets to. Um, but I feel like you can get that same story message in a much shorter movie. Even Citizen Kane, which is not a short movie, but shorter than this movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which is fair. Uh, yeah, no, I feel like she is kind of an insufferable protagonist in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot you just of wanna, <laughs> Yeah, it's just one of those things where she keeps, you know, going after this thing and the audience is so far ahead of her of knowing that this is not what she needs and not... Uh, it's not going to work out for her that the more things just keep going wrong because she won't let go of it you just start to get more and more frustrated and I don't know that there was a single point in this movie where I was sympathetic towards her no me neither me not neither. even at the beginning they didn't even build it up at the beginning really because she is she's, she's just she's super privileged and she's super awful to like everybody uh, yeah because I mean the first thing that happens like if we had seen a little bit more of her uh, relationship with uh, I'm trying to keep all the Ashley? all the names straight. Well, yeah, with Ashley. Um, then maybe I could understand. But like the first thing that we see is just her being upset because this guy that she likes but doesn't seem to have that much of an affinity for her is getting mm-hmm. married to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just keeps going from there. Like she just never lets go of this guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and like this really illogical way too, um, and I kind of get it. Like at a certain point, he goes off to war, mm-hmm. and he becomes like he he stops existing as a reality in her world and starts existing as like a idealized version of who he really is. Like he, the second he stops being present, he becomes. Put, he, get, he goes up on a pedestal in her mind even more so than he already was and like all of his flaws disappear because he's not present she only remembers yeah. the good things about him um, even though he clearly did not love her ever um, yeah okay so here's okay here's the one thing that I'm thinking as we're talking through this is let's talk about it um, in regards to Rhett because I think Rhett is a much more uh, complicated and interesting character in oh, his relationship to her character. And so yeah so if we take not- her as being this clearly flawed, irreparably kind of obsessed woman, the fact that Rhett falls in love with her is something that we've seen. Like someone falls in love with someone, even though they know like this is dumb, like they're doing so many dumb things, but I just like, I just love them anyway. And then it, it almost starts to turn into like a taming of the shrew kind of thing, but it just doesn't work. Like it never, they never connect at the end, and that's where the tragedy comes in. Almost more for Rhett, even, than uh, than Scarlet. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. And just looking at it from, like, a filmmaker's perspective, Rhett is a, I would argue, a far more interesting character <laughs> yeah. than uh, than Scarlet is. And it part, part of it is that Scarlet just feels, like, uncooked. Like, she's got one shtick in terms of being a character, and that is... I'm not That's why I don't think she's the protagonist. Uh, yeah, like she's the focal point of the movie. Um, but honestly, yeah, like um, Rhett's the one that Brett, changes. Rhett makes a much better, much better protagonist. And you're right. He does actually change. And she she like kind of changes at the end. She does like a 180 pivot all of a sudden, like in the last 10 minutes. Um, 
but he's the one that's basically struggling with this. Like he knows that he got into this mess um, and he's trying to salvage it all along the way. And it just like, it just doesn't work. Oh, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, cause I feel like this goes into one of the reasons why Scarlet and a few of the other characters start off as so insufferable. And again, a lot of the other characters like mature over the course of the war. And as soon as they realize what reality is actually like, and they stop living in their little fairy tale, like they change and become better. Like Olivia de Havilland's character becomes better. Ashley mm-hmm. actually does become better over the course of the movie. He takes a while, but he gets there. Rhett becomes yeah. better over the course of the movie. Scarlett O'Hara just keeps her blinders on. Um, until the last like 10 minutes. <laughs> in la- until the last 10 seconds. Yeah, really. <laughs> and then they give you like a Hollywood ending where it should have ended sad, but it was like, this is 1939 in Hollywood. It can't end sad. Um, yeah. So they gave there's it like actually a theme a, of hope. Yeah, there's actually a story. I mean, everyone knows the, the classic line. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Um, and there, that line was almost cut by the uh, by the production code people um, because of the word damn. And then I think like like right before they were finishing the movie, they like revised the the code to say hell or damn can't be used unless it has an integral part in the story or the time period or something like that. And mm-hmm. so it like was able to to stay in there. And now it's one of the most famous lines in film history. Yeah. Yeah, and I love I love that like out of context you don't realize how like edgy that line is. Oh yeah. <laughs> like to a modern person's ear, it doesn't seem that edgy, but it really, really is. Um especially for nineteen thirty nine. Uh but yeah. And to like end the movie on that. Like it's not like a throwaway oh, yeah. line. It's like it is the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the end of it. Um and that's kind of how the audience feels about Scarlet, I think, at the end. Um Yeah, seriously. And I think but, that's kind of what what saves it is the fact that the movie knows that Scarlet is terrible and she has this tragic ending. It's not like things work out for her. Yeah, no, they don't. They really don't. And it, it's it's exactly what she has coming to her the entire movie. Um, mm-hmm. She loses yes. everything. Let's talk about the. So there is an argument to be made that any movie during set within the. Uh, slavery era of South, South, the American South is inherently going to involve racism, right? Like that makes sense. But yeah. I would argue that this movie kind of like goes above and beyond to take a overly sympathetic viewpoint towards slavers um, and towards the people with this, uh, you know, with that privilege of, like having all their their society built off of slavery um, and kind of skewing some of the reasons for the Civil War uh, to be more about like honor than it is about like uh, we would like to keep well, yeah. a slave and economy. And a lot of Deep we South stories are are about Southern honor and, and that kind of thing. Um, so that's that's not uncommon in this in this type of story. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. But this one definitely does go kind of above and beyond in like this kind of gross way that if it was done today, would it, well, one, it wouldn't. Uh, it, yeah. would, it would never, ever happen. But even for 1939, feels a little over the top, right? Like some of the, like even some of the slaves like sticking around and after they've ostensibly been freed and being so sympathetic towards the people who owed them and who uh, by the sounds of some of the dialogue, 
uh, aren't even paying them <laughs> at this yeah. point because they have no money. Yeah, because then and and then they they complain uh, in that second half of the movie after the war, like, well, if we keep them, then we got to pay them. We can't afford to do that. Yeah, that kind or, of, like or all like that. The, the part where the slaves have been pressed into fighting for the South, and the uh, the the guy in charge of the slaves at uh, the O'Hara's plantation is marching in line and tells Scarlet that it's okay. We'll whip those Yankees. And I'm like, there's no way. There's, I'm sorry, but no. <laughs> yeah. No, that's 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 really revisionist and not in a good way. Um, but, and I, I would say that, you know, if it was far enough back, if this movie was made far enough back, that would be understandable. Like, if they had movie technology in 1880, I wouldn't be shocked if this was made. This is 1939. This is a long time after the Civil War. And there's almost no excuse for Hollywood to be doing this crap at this point in history. Um, now, it was kind of part of the publicity of this movie is it's very, you know, openly uh, sympathetic to the South. And there is a history of that in Hollywood. You know, look at like a nation is born um, or birth of a nation. Uh, and, you know, the premiere of this movie was held in Atlanta Um so it was it did kind of go into the publicity and marketing campaign in the uh, sick quote launch, although I don't think launch in terms of marketing or, uh, you know, business was really a term in 1939. Um, but it did kind of go into the business aspect of it. But even then, that's pretty shady. And it is to somebody who lives in 2019 a bit aberrant to watch the uh racist undertones within the movie um yeah i i, I don't even know if i call them undertones i might call them overtones um but it is you know kind of something that is really notable about this movie um and it would we would be amiss to not have brought it up yeah yeah and i mean there's been a lot of backlash from the african-american community to the film uh also to the book apparently uh, some, sure of the the descriptive, some of the descriptive passages in the book are uh, quite problematic. So, um, yeah, no, not saying that this is a perfect movie by any means, especially in, in relation to some of those sensibilities. Um, I think that nowadays we do have more of a um, kind of heightened awareness of that than they would have even in the 30s, but that still doesn't make it okay, like ever. Yeah, yeah. But it is one of the I mean, one of the things that we're going to probably hit with all of these films is how does it hold up? And that's one of one of the things that, uh, you know, is makes it difficult to kind of watch this as the hit that it was when it came out. Um, but, you know, what what other things go into like, how do you how do you think it holds up today, Alex? Oh, uh, I thought it. If, if something along these lines came out today, I probably wouldn't watch it. Or at least not yeah. for a while. Especially I, I at watch this length. Yeah, it's so long. Yeah. It's such... I think I said, I think I said uh, like, in my notes for this week that uh, you can see if you subscribe to us on Patreon, um, that, like, if you watch Citizen Kane and read Ethan Frome, it will take you less time and you'll get the same story of the... Uh, the prideful downfall and also the um, the the weird uh, like 
semi-unfaithfulness um, within the marriage because of just being, uh, like we talked about when we talked uh, about Lost in Translation, this kind of emotional um, adultery that she commit. Like, that's the whole point of, of her character in this movie is that she's never face- faithful to any of the three husbands that she has during the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, not like physically or literally, but just... Um, in in her own mind and spirit basically yeah, she's constantly uh, living within like a fantasy um yeah. and never like fully addresses reality and that is detrimental to you know how her reality actually exists um, yeah so the film does go for some really big and important themes um but i don't know maybe it's just because it's not like you know like the romance didn't necessarily hook me and there were all these like little like I didn't get so into it that this is a movie that I'm going to go back and like watch on a yearly yeah. basis or something. I think, I think a big part of it for me and I think for a lot of people is that obviously Scarlett O'Hara is the focal point of this movie, but she's mm-hmm. just not that compelling. Um, yeah. And because of that, like it's just hard to feel just because you don't. So a, a, a character either has to be likable or interesting uh, preferably interesting, <laughs> and she is effectively neither. She's kind of like a whiny teenager, like it's this entire time. Note. Yeah, yeah, and it's really, really exhausting. Um, yeah, and I get like the whole. I get the dramatic. Uh, oh, Ashley. Oh, you know, like I love sappy like drama stuff like that. But it was mm-hmm. just there wasn't enough of a hook to it to get me to that place where I'm like, I'm feeling for her and I'm, I don't care how over the top the acting goes and stuff like that. Because, you know, if I'm into the characters, I can overlook all that stuff and kind of go along with the ride. But I just didn't get there, at least not with Scarlet. Like, I don't know, like, I mean, the story would have been very different if you had focused it on Rhett. But again, Rhett is just more interesting in his relationship and his emotions trying to deal with Scarlet. Yeah, and I get I get why they didn't have as especially for like the first half of the movie. There's just not that much ret in it, and I think a big part of that is that uh, Clark Gable overpowers um, Vivian Leigh in terms of mm-hmm. charisma, yeah, um, personality. His personality reminded me a lot of his character in uh, It Happened One Night in the fact that uh, he kind of is coyly dealing with this uh, basically spoiled brat kind of a character. Um, and, you know, he comes in with these intentions of, uh, I mean, he doesn't really in it, it happened one night, like try to cut her down to size. He's just going along for the ride, but just throwing him in with this kind of really insolent um, romantic foil, uh, you know, it, it gave me those kind of vibes, except obviously the tones of the two movies are extremely different. Of course, of course. And it's not like, Scarlett O'Hara had to be that insufferable, but she was, um, yeah. and that's that's a combination of decisions that were made in the, the the script writing and the direction. And yeah, if if there was even just like a little bit of time where we kind of hear uh, Scarlett like soliloquizing like all the things that she likes about Ashley, I feel like even that would have been a, a step in the right direction of getting that sympathy to her. Yeah. I don't know. She just never really gets flushed out in any sort of sympathetic way. And I think, I feel like it's something that played well, obviously it played really well in 1939. It worked really well. But our concept of like in the public's mind of what we expect from a romance and what we expect from characters, especially female characters has grown dramatically since then. 
Absolutely. Um, we expect much more fleshed out characters. We expect characters with interest outside of romance. Um, and while there is certainly interesting stories to be made about both men and women and other people um, who are who are driven almost solely by romance to the detriment of all else, <clears throat> 500 Days of Summer uh, is one that just pops into my head immediately if you're looking for like a male perspective on that. But, you know, there definitely is an interesting way to do that story. But this doesn't feel like that. That's yeah. It, but it doesn't feel like they went wholeheartedly on this, even though that is kind of like the overarching thought behind this. It's not super duper interesting. It's more like, you know, the the argument made in this movie is like you couldn't accept one love because of another love. You know, it wasn't like everything else in your life falls apart because of this. Um, everything else in her life fell apart because of the war and because her dad was an idiot. Um I think a drunken idiot. I don't exactly remember the context of that scene. Um, no, uh, after her mom died, he just kind of lost it. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, no, the scene where he just like randomly like shoots off his mouth and then like go goes and like jumps a fence on a horse yeah, and trips and rides dies. His horse and I was like, this guy literally. Yeah. Like, I get that you don't like this guy who showed up to try to buy your your place, but he literally just showed up. You insulted him threw mud at him he was like well you just insulted me i'm gonna leave left and then he called him coward and chased after him it's the almost whole, yeah the scene but felt that very was almost nonsensical uh, and self-destructive it, it it was a uh it was a setup and payoff though because at the very beginning of the film she has a moment with her dad where she says something like and i won't tell mom that you've been jumping the fences on your horse again um because apparently that's something he's you know hurt himself doing before or whatever so it was like one of these things where it's set up there that's kind of a moment of them connecting and then that's what gets him killed and then that's what gets their daughter killed so it's like it it's a cycle but yeah that specific moment did not feel earned very well yeah no it felt it felt very weird in the moment there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's essentially thematically self-destruction um mm -hmm. which is interesting but that it gets swamped in the sheer scope of this movie, right? Yeah. Like, it's a big yeah, production, right. which is really impressive, but it goes on for so long that you expect a little more uh, nuance from it. Yeah, and one last thing about uh, Gone with the Wind before we move on, uh, because this is going to be mentioned again with Casablanca, um, but one of the reasons why Gone with the Wind remains so popular um, was because it was periodic re-released re almost every five years or so, first by Selznick and then by MGM, who um, he sold it to, essentially to play again in theaters uh, once more, which for fans of the movie who wanted to show their kids the movie, great way to do it. Uh, and you didn't really have any other options in case, in, except unless you happened to own a copy of the movie, by which I mean you owned film reels of it. Um there was no Netflix. There was no VHS tapes. There were no DVDs. Um, if you wanted to rewatch it, you had to hopefully find it playing in a theater somewhere, um, which is kind of, this kind of like belies the point, the common thought that all movies were disposable before like the seventies or the sixties or the seventies. Not entirely true. They were not disposable if they made money. <laughs> Yeah, um, and Gone with the Wind is one of the one of the uh, 
one of the thoughts on that. And for anybody wondering whether or not the re-released uh, uh, runs, if those uh, grosses were included in the $3.4 billion number I mentioned earlier when I mentioned this was still the top grossing movie of all time when accounted for inflation, uh, no, that was the original release only, um, which Dang. is shocking. This is continues to make a lot of money to this day, although Gone with the Wind, as we've pointed out over the course of this conversation, has declined dramatically in popularity because of its kind of super, super dated and problematic um, themes addressed within it. Uh, but yeah. even though that movie went on for four hours, that doesn't mean we're going to talk about it for four hours. So let's move on to Casablanca, um, the only movie even close to two hours today. Uh, from 1942. Casablanca from 1942. It's World War II, and Morocco is part of the puppet French Vichy state set up by a conquering Third Reich. The city of Casablanca exists just far enough away from the German focus of power to be an escaping front for many European, Jewish, and rebel refugees. Rick Blaine, an American with a deep hurt in his past, runs Rick's Café Americaine, an upscale nightclub with drinks, gambling, and the excellent entertainer and friend Sam on the piano. Rick claims to be neutral, but admits to aiding Ethiopia in its war against fascist Italy and fighting on the Loyalist side in the Spanish Civil War. Through happenstance, Rick comes into the possession of two letters of transit, tickets to help any two refugees escape to neutral Portugal, and then through bad luck, his old flame who left him in the dust, Elza Lund, walks into his joint. With her is the Czech resistance leader, Victor Laszlo, her husband. Rick finds himself reliving his past, but he's not allowed the time to do it peacefully. The German authorities in town begin suspecting him, and he soon realizes he can't remain neutral any longer. All right, thank you, Jason. Um, so Casablanca is one of those movies that was kind of unexpectedly successful and unexpectedly memorable. Um, yeah. It was kind of made, you know, not not for no money, but for relatively cheap money for the day. It wasn't meant to be super successful. It goes on to win, like, a bajillion Oscars, including Best Picture. Um, and then it goes on to become one of the most famous movies of all time. Uh, very and unexpectedly. It's so good. Yeah, it's, it's really still, good. It holds up too. I'll just spoil that that part of it. <laughs> it is. It is. And you know, let's let's just hit what we're on the topic. Let's just hit it with the trivia about why it's so popular today. Um, besides the fact that it's quality, it's a quality movie. Um, like we said, this was uh, just a huge success when it came out in theaters. Unexpectedly, it wasn't uh, planned on being a huge success. It was kind of like a mid-tier movie, but oh yeah, again, 1942 TV's not really a thing. You know, re-releases of movies were rare, so you pretty much saw it when it was theaters and the in theaters, and that and that was it. So for about 20 years, Casablanca falls off the face of the earth. Um, some people might have remembered it, but not a lot of people were continually watching it new again unless you happen to be one of the rare people who had a copy but then tv comes along and one of the things that made tv successful and one of the reasons that studios finally came around to tv was that it offered a way to use their back catalog of movies to make money um it's one of the reasons why t you know even to this day you'll see old reruns of old movies on tv um 
you know, not just on TCM. It was just something that played perhaps during the day outside of the primetime air uh, hours. Uh, but you would see movies playing and Casablanca is one of those ones made sense. It won a best picture. Maybe it'll do well on TV. It did really well on TV and it became one of the most rerun movies ever on in television history. Um, for years and years and years and years and years, pretty much up until the streaming era, uh, because once the streaming era comes along and it becomes a little more easy to directly monetize uh, people requesting to watch a movie on their own time, uh, Casablanca goes you know behind paywalls and you know on st- certain streaming services. Uh, I can't remember who directly owns it right now. It might be HBO, uh, but somebody has the rights to it. HBO or Showtime. Uh, but somebody has the rights to it and it plays on a premium network now. Uh, but because it replayed itself on television so much, it becomes one of the most popular movies of all time, um, which is crazy because yeah. it never it was never, ever, ever, ever meant to do that. It was like a war pick uh, that was designed based off of an unfinished screenplay that was given to an immigrant director that nobody thought would be able to make this booming success out of it. But I think that's I think that's also a little bit understating the impact of Humphrey Bogart and Ingmar Bergman. Like they were still big stars before this movie happened. Um, and putting them together was something that uh, Michael Curtiz really, really wanted to do um, and just have that charisma going. And I think that um, the, the I mean, you've got Claude Rains, you've got Peter Lorre, like all of these people have names at this point. Like it's got a big cast, even though the production budget is not the the biggest gone with the wind type of production. Yeah. Like to the point where um, the airplane at the end of the film was actually made out of cardboard. <laughs> Wait, was it really? <laughs> yeah, apparently it. they shot everything on a back lot except for the hangar scene Which at the end. Which was shot at the Van Nuys airport. Yeah, and so... They had instead of like a full like set, they had a cardboard uh, scale cardboard cutout of an airplane in the background with all that fog, which is why it's so doggone foggy um, in that thing. Well, one of the reasons. Um, And also they apparently also had little people extras to be walking around and looking like they're really far away. Um, And so there's like I didn't even know this. I never noticed that in the film before, but that's. I mean, for a movie that became so big, it's hilarious the little, like, cheap filmmaking tricks that went into it. Right. And I will say, as far as filmmaking tricks, Alex, this movie has my favorite cookies of any film I think I've ever seen. Favorite uh, cookies? Should we, yeah, do you want to get technical and talk about cookies in yeah, terms you, you, of... Uh, well, I'm not 100% sure what you're talking about right now, so what, what exactly yeah, are you talking about, Jonathan? Let's get into cookies. So... Cookies are um, a uh, base like a trick um, in cinematography and lighting where you have a cutout of something, um, usually like on metal or cardboard, and you hold it, you put it in front of whatever light that you're using, either in the background or it could be on the actor, um, and it it has it basically just casts a shadow. But it's a shadow that usually is intended to look like something. So, for example, if you want it to look like you've got light coming through a window, but obviously you're in a back lot and you don't have a fourth wall and all that kind of stuff, then you just put up a cookie with some blind slats in it, and then your light comes in looking like there's a window from behind the camera that's spilling into the frame. Uh, And in this film, there are things like that with, like, palm leaves uh, in the back of scenes like the Blue Parrot. Um, 
and, uh, you know, various windows and stained glass and stuff like that. Uh, there are just a lot of really good close-up shots where they throw a cookie up in front of a light in the background just to add some texture and add, like, this really nice style, which is another thing that makes the film, uh, I think, feel bigger than it probably was. It's just there's a lot of style visually. Yeah, yeah, no, it actually has a really impressive visual look to it. Um, it definitely feels inspired by, like, noir lighting, um, which is probably because, you know, they had to do so many of those uh, tricks that became popular with noir, mostly because they were done on the cheap. Would you consider this a noir? I would not consider this a noir. I would consider okay. this, like, one of the first instances of noir spilling into other genres, right? Because noir lighting has become, I would argue one of the most dominant forms of lighting in um, modern both TV and uh, and cinema, especially with genre films. Anything- especially drama. Like, comedy is usually much more yeah. uh, fully lit. That's yeah. not always the case, especially yeah. nowadays when comedy is even leaking into other genres. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, especially in drama, like the really high contrast, um, chiaroscuro lighting and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, cause I think I've always categorized this as a noir film. Um, but now that I'm kind of thinking about it, it doesn't have most of the hallmarks that we generally talk about when we reference noir films, which is interesting because it, it has elements of crime. It has elements of uh, romance and betrayal and stuff like that, but none of those are really the point. Like the romance is the point. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, no, I would say this is romance. This is you could call this a thriller. I would also put this in the thriller category. Um, now we've kind of gone down this road of escalation to the point where nowadays, you know, thriller means something much more intense than this movie. Um, but I would definitely for 1942 put this in that category. Um, okay, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the uh, story behind the production of this movie. Uh, one of the most interesting things to note uh, is that very rarely are any movies shot in sequential order. That's an odd thing to do. You don't have to do it. It's not like a play where once scene one, it happens, and scene two happens, and scene three happens, because you can cut it up and rearrange it afterwards. So you yeah. do it whatever way makes it most efficient on the production. Um, if you can shoot all the scenes in one location within a few days, you do it. Even if it's scene two, scene 36 and scene 107, um, then you go back to a different location and you shoot scene one and scene 55. Um, but in this case, this movie was done, uh, with an unproduced, uncompleted play that was quickly and hurriedly adapted into a screenplay, um, and was actually and so being if, completed as the, yeah, as the film was done. being made. <laughs> it wasn't done when they started. They only had half of a script. So they were like, start at the beginning. And if that'll give us time to write the rest. And if you have to change something towards the back half of this, the part we have done, we can change it before you get to it. That'll give us the most time. Yeah. So that's there's what they a story, did. There's a story of Ingrid Bergman asking uh, Michael Curtiz, like, uh, uh, who should I who should I love more? Who do I act like? you know, I'm in love with more. And he's like, I don't know, just play, play them evenly, I guess. Cause they didn't know what was going to happen by the end. Yeah. They're like, uh, we don't know. Um, which is an accident that ended up in a really good movie. Um, yeah. Especially this- for a movie with such an impactful ending, which I think is really interesting. Uh, and there's, al- there's also a story about the 
ending because uh, there are a couple elements that we have to bring up, especially in terms of the code. One that I didn't actually realize was a part of the code, but uh, it was not allowed to show a woman leaving her husband for another man. So basically the ending, we haven't even talked about spoilers for this episode, but we're not like really doing spoiler warnings. So watch these movies before, <laughs> before you listen yeah, to this. Fair. Too late for Gun with the Wind. Um, but basically the option for um, Ingrid Bergman to stay with uh, Humphrey Bogart uh, at the end was was not there. They considered actually having um, Laszlo get killed in Casablanca and then she would stay with him or no, she would leave. She would leave with uh, Rick. Um, but I don't actually know how this ending came about, but uh, eventually they, they uh, got to this one. And the other, the other interesting thing is that like, as this script is being written, there are like three or four writers on the film um, too, that all kind of had like varying takes on things. But uh, they talk about how, those kind of um, the friction between all of those different perspectives actually uh, came together to make a really good story in kind of a a, a sort of rare um, exception, I guess, to to something like that. Like a lot of times, um, you know, if you have that much disagreement, there's usually something is going to suffer for it. But in this one, like they just had the right amount of tension that kind of, I guess, smoothed off the edges of everyone's bad ideas. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it actually, I think what happened over the course of this movie is um, a combination of two things. One, uh, the movie for, which is, and this is a rare thing to happen in the studio system, kind of grew organically, like the story grew organically, right? Like you mm -hmm. have the scenes being shot on set, the actual incarnations of these characters um, influencing what is being written at the same time that what is being written is influencing the characters, so it all happens a little more naturally than you write, sitting down, writing an entire script, and then having somebody make sense of it after the fact. Um, the actual incarnations of the characters are influencing um, what is how the characters proceed. So it feels a little more organic, and what happens to the characters feels a little more natural, I think, because of it, um, which is not standard procedure for the studio system or for most movies right. at any point in time. Um, Probably not a, recommended procedure either. Yeah, it's it's a little more natural for TV shows, which is why a lot of times a lot of really good TV shows have that feeling of these characters feel natural, these characters feel organic. It feels like what's happening to them is a consequence of their own decisions and their own personalities, um, which you know is makes for good entertainment. It makes for good mm -hmm. movies, good uh, product. Um, the problem the is that you've got to make sure that it all comes together at some point. Yeah, you have to you have to tie it in. And they had they had excellent writers on this movie, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. But somebody, uh, the other thing that makes this work so effectively is that the people in these roles are really good actors. Humphrey yeah, Bogart they all are so good. And Ingrid Bergman are amazing, obviously, and they have an amazing uh, supporting cast. Claude Rains might be my favorite character actor of all time, um, but. To have so many mega stars in one spot on a non, you know, a movie that wasn't necessarily like the biggest one of all time. Like it wasn't a, it wasn't a Gone with the Wind when it was being made at all. Um, yeah, right. That is a that is one of the benefits of the studio system, right? Like you you were a contract player. You were contracted to a studio. And when a studio wanted it, you in a movie, you pretty much more or less had to do it or take severe consequences. Um 
and so we have we have a bunch of we have a collection of a lot of talent in one spot um which is rare we have a director who is sympathetic to what's going on like the theme of this movie kind of develops organically uh michael curtiz uh obviously we already mentioned he is a uh hungarian jewish immigrant uh he moved much much earlier than world war ii or even the breakout of nazism within europe mm-hmm. um but he his he had several several family members who did flee um the uh the third reich and obviously or i guess not obviously but many of the other roles within the movie are filled by refugees uh, from extras to bit players to smaller roles. Uh, I mean, even Peter Lorre, like, he he fled Nazi Europe. He, yeah, he came from Germany around the same time that Fritz Lang did. Fritz Lang came, uh, yeah. he escaped Nazi Germany and started making <laughs> noir films over here. Um, yeah, and it is so not intentional that that is right. what happens. It just so happened that um, this influx of people running away from... Uh, Nazi Europe came in the mid to late thirties and we're all here in 1942 to make this movie. Um, a, a lot of just happy accidents kind of collided on this movie to make it as epic as it is. And as signature as it is, it has so many wonderful lines that people quote like oh every gosh. day. Uh, people this probably is the don't even know that they're from Casablanca. Yeah. yeah. This is the beginning of a wonderful friendship. Here's to you kid. Uh, Played we'll again, Sam. Paris. Although yeah. that's not that's not a uh, that's that's a misquote. Um, which, yep. considering that this became popular through television, makes sense. That you know, once you release it to the the wider populace, and they don't have like an internet wiki to uh, check you know, whether or not they got the quotation right, it makes sense that it would be messed up. But the actual quote is, "Play it once, Sam, for old time's sake." Uh, yeah. The idea is the same, but the, those actual words don't actually aren't actually said. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, excellent movie. Anything else that we have to say about Casablanca, Jonathan? The last thing that I do want to say about the movie is um, the fact that it comes out uh, three years before the war ends, um, and I always think that that's interesting. Like these films in this really small period of time between the time that World War II, World War Two starts and the time that it ends. Um, I'm thinking specifically right now about the great dictator, uh, because of the reference to concentration camps, the fact that they mentioned that Laszlo had been in a concentration camp, um, and he's got like that scar on his face and stuff. Uh, but the fact is we didn't know how bad the concentration camps were at this point. And so it kind of feels like the references to concentration camps are like a little, too trivial or more trivial than they should be before we actually like understood the extent of what was happening, um, in them and in Nazi Germany. Uh, so that, that's just one of those things that again, talking about like the way that it holds up, it's not anything that makes or breaks the film. And it's like, there are a couple of references to the concentration camps, but it's one of those things that I'm always thinking like, yeah, he wouldn't have got off that easy. I don't think. No, no, yeah, no. There's definitely a lot of information that uh, wasn't was either unknown or like not well known at the time. Yeah, at least not by people who were still in the U.S. and not like soldiers. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's just that's one interesting thing that I always think about with this movie. Um, 
But shall we move on to our last film for the day, West Side Story? Yes, let's. Jason, take it away. West Side Story from 1961. On the streets of New York, two small-time gangs VA for control of a neighborhood. The Jets are made of Caucasian American-born boys, although most of their parents or grandparents were immigrants. They fear newcomers taking their turf. The Sharks are made up of Puerto Rican immigrants, upset at the restricted opportunities here in America. They're eager to take something of the American dream for themselves. But two of the group's members aren't so interested in fighting, despite the rising tensions between the two gangs threatening to snap. Tony, who co-founded the Jets before quitting gang life, is eager for something bigger than the world he's so used to. Maria, a young Puerto Rican, is ready to fall in love and feel something powerful. The two of them lock eyes across a community party one night, and the tale of the star-crossed lovers doomed due to circumstance begins. All right, so West Side Story. We haven't done... When is the last time we did a musical? Have we done a musical recently? I can't remember. Um, let me check. Oh, actually, we did. We did uh, um, Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, yeah, I think that was the last musical. Yeah, it was probably the last musical. Um, so, yeah, this we have a musical directed by Robert Wise, who, as we've already mentioned, is kind of a jack-of-all well, trades no, when it comes to... no, we did Anastasia, to... like, last week. Oh, yeah, I guess I guess that counts. Um it is literally a musical. <laughs> it is a musical. Um, and so, yeah, we, we also mentioned that the film was kind of co-directed by Jeremy Robbins. Jeremy Robbins had um, directed and choreographed the, uh, the stage play. Version. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he may have written it, too. I'm not sure. Um, but basically... The, the studio did not want Jeremy Robbins to direct the film version because he had no experience directing film and they thought that it needed someone who obviously was a, a, a seasoned director in order to um, get the visual uh, the visuals to come across with the cameras and all the, the technical aspects that go into filmmaking that are obviously quite different from stage. So Robert Wise is pulled on and then Robert Wise is like, okay, well, how am I going to make this the best that it can be? I need to have the guy who created this thing and originated it on the stage. So he uh, convinced the studio to let Jeremy Robbins be a co-director with him. Um, and so they, Jeremy Robbins would uh, basically take a lot of the dancing and choreography elements and direct those. And Robert Wise would do a lot more of the, the technical and acting elements. Um, and then I think at some point near the end of the film, they... Uh, we're starting to have some issues. So they, they, uh, Robert Wise ended up taking on, um, the, the final elements of the, of the production on his own. Uh, but as, as you said at the beginning, he, he insisted that the, uh, Oscar for best director be given, uh, jointly to both of them, which I think is a really, really cool move. Yeah, no, he is a super cool dude. Um, to insist that it goes on him. I mean, obviously, like, he was... <clears throat> uh, Jerome Robbins was, you know, the the guy who initially made it a success on Broadway, and I'm sure he helped out in some capacity. Like, his... Even after he was kicked off of the... Um, oh, off of the movie for essentially being too expensive um, to have no. a second... to pay a second director's salary, his, he, his choreographers stayed on to help uh, choreograph and direct the dance numbers. And I'm sorry, there's no way this guy wasn't involved 
it, 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 at least a little bit if his entire team was working on this movie, but oh, he technically yeah. wasn't the director. Um, even if he was just talking to them, you know, he contributed. And that's actually like one of the rare instances of someone being super cool uh, in studio system Hollywood to be like, yeah, come on, come get one. Um, it's actually very rare. Uh, it's And I think we talked about this with the Coen brothers for multiple directors to be uh, credited on a movie. They have to be an established team now, which mm-hmm. is it's becoming more common, but it yeah, definitely was it, not in 1961, which the, the concept of that ruling and that wording is a little bit of a catch 22. Like, how do you how do you become a, an established team? Oh, you direct a movie together. Well, how do you direct a movie together? You be an established team. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it still happens somehow. It's just a little messy. Uh, this is uh, significant because it is also another super big production, like huge. Um, lots of extras, not nearly as many as Gone with the Wind, um, but lots of extras. Almost entirely backlots. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it except for really notably, like yeah, but notably the first scene. Uh, in the daytime, basically the prologue of the film, um, where we're introduced to the um, the jets and the sharks, and they're fighting, but doing it through dance and choreography with no words, which I think is really well done, by the way. But that was actually shot in the streets of New York with natural lighting, um, which is impressive to say <laughs> the first, because uh, we we talked about even that with. Um, Elaine May, how she shot Mikey and Nikki in the streets of New York at night. Uh, but imagine shooting a huge dance number in the streets of New York during the day. It sounds like a nightmare. Um, but they That's wanted the to establish the studios do not have anymore. Yeah, right. But they really wanted to establish the uh, the reality of the world because for ninety percent of the movie, we're on backlots and we're on pretty stylistically. Uh, built stages and stuff that make it feel very theatrical. Um, And that's one of the things that uh, Robert Wise talks about when he talks about the production of this film is that musicals are kind of by their nature, very fantastical. Um, And so on a stage, you're, you're already using your imagination a lot to fill in gaps in uh, setting and stuff like that. Um, But on film, film is a, is more of a realistic type of medium. And so the merging of those can be, kind of awkward and so that was one way to bridge that gap was to shoot the first scene in these real locations and and uh, put them together so we know from the beginning what to expect we have these yeah. very stylized and fantastical dance sequences and ways that characters are interacting that they don't really in real life um, in a real life situation and then we go to our sets and we just carry that over uh, in our minds um, and, you not walk and it down ends the street with your friends snapping, Jonathan? Uh, yeah, but I, I usually don't uh, do the all the leaps and stuff like that. But the snapping oh, is, is very realistic. The leaps are really hard on the knees. I, I don't. No, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Fair. Fair. Yes, no, but that is nice. It's nice to give the audience kind of like a dose of reality, even though, <laughs> even if they don't know they're getting it right at the start, just to kind of uh, plant it in the in their minds for later on because you're going to need it you're going to need that yeah. credit that you earn up with the audience um i even appreciate some of the stuff they do in this movie with the set design i think this might be even one for set design if i remember correctly from all of those oscars that we listed right. at the top of this episode i'm sorry there's so many it did it did it did it won for best art direction set yeah, design. There you go. um 
Yeah, but I specifically they do a lot like of the work. the bridge. The bridge set stands out to me. The bridge um, set's really cool. The one that the fight. that shows to me that they're trying really hard to make this to to keep the fantasy in check. Um, obviously, the fantasy is part of the fun, but if you let it go too far and too out there, you are uh, you're kind of playing with fire in terms of like. Uh, keeping the audience engaged like you've got to especially keep it a in a dramatic grounded. production like this yeah right like you want them to take it seriously and even now and i'm sure we'll talk about how this holds up even now like looking back a little bit of it is a is a little over the top feels a little saccharine compared to what we're used to today um but mm-hmm. the the scene in the the ballroom uh yeah is one really cool two i love that they made it so big um but at the same yeah, time they huge. kept like this texture on the wall if you look at the tops um it's not the natural texture of the wall it's wear on the wall it almost looks like water dripping down from like ac vents above uh-huh. um that put texture on the in. wall yeah and you know one it breaks up the wall because as i noted if you kept that wall pure red it would have destroyed your eyes um it would have been I too mean, much to look at pretty red it's like it's a little still, on the pink side but it's, it's still intensely red you're it's right vibrant yeah <laughs> that's vibrant feels like an understatement <laughs> right. um but you know just breaking it up a little bit and giving it a little bit of texture um little touches like that keep it in check to the point where you can actually still look upon it without having your eyes burn out of their sockets um which is important because if your audience you, you know it's like why you know, we can make candy as sweet as we want, but do we really want it that sweet? Um, there's a small segment of the population that would scream, yes, we do want it that sweet. <laughs> but for most people, you need it checked a little bit in order to enjoy it. And that's important in movies, too. Like, you can have fantasy, you can enjoy your fantasy all you want, but you need it connected or else it won't, like, the dramatic moments of the story, the dramatic points of the story won't feel connected and won't feel real. Um, and yeah. I'm not saying like a little bit of water on the wa- water wear on the walls makes the romance more real. I'm saying the overall effort in the uh, in the set design and the costume design to make the world feel lived in and real and uh, alive makes these characters' problems hit home more and feel like they matter and impact the world around them rather than yeah. just being a part of this ongoing fantasy. Yeah. And there's actually, while we're on the ballroom scene, there are two elements of the ballroom scene that I want to bring up, uh, on a technical level. Um, the first is, um, that I think there may be another way that they did this, but I think they used rear projection in that scene, not, which is interesting because rear projection is usually used for really kind of technically complex, uh, things like, uh, like driving, um, driving scenes and stuff like that. But the, the part where all the lights dim and they're spotlighted on, um, uh, Maria and Tony. Um, and when they're doing the close-ups, there's like, there are these, these lights that, uh, are kind of like little, little tiny colored pinpricks or whatever, but they're all in focus. They're on in focus on, uh, Maria and Tony and on the, the characters in the background, which are out of focus. Um, and so I feel like they did this where it was rear projection of them standing on a stage with the background actors projected behind them. And then the lights are also being shown, um, onto the actors and the projection, uh, 
which is like really technical and like doesn't really matter. But I thought that it was a really interesting thing because what it kind of does is it makes Tony and Maria feel like they are completely separate from everybody else because they are. Yeah, Everyone no, else isn't really important. there. Yeah, that's kind of um, like the whole point of that scene, which is actually really cool. Like it makes yeah. their thing feel it makes the whole experience a little more surreal, which is cool. I like when they do mm-hmm. the surreal stuff in this movie. Um, that's the other thing I want to bring up, actually, is uh, because the first thing that we see when Tony and Maria see each other is the um, rest the of the blurred, world fade away. Yeah, the blurred vignettes that happen around them. Um, and so they're the only things in focus in a really unnatural kind of a way. And then this happens again on their quote unquote balcony scene uh, where they're standing there singing and then all of a sudden everything on either side of them just like goes to this really colorful uh, blur um, just for like the the climax of their song and then it fades away again. Um, And the thing that I think is really interesting is the fact that um, these really kind of stylized and unnatural editing techniques are being used uh, by Robert Wise, who, if we remember, is the same editor of Citizen Kane, which has some crazy editing techniques in it. Uh, and that was like from way early on in his career. So this is something that Robert Wise is like, is one of his trademarks almost is these really uh, kind of out there editing techniques. Like I still think about the, um, that parrot squawk transition from Citizen Kane that's just like comes out of nowhere, but it's so memorable. Man, who doesn't think about the parrot squawk? I think I have nightmares about the parrot squawk. <laughs> I mean, he is... He's kind of one of those figures uh, who is kind of everywhere throughout early Hollywood history, but it isn't widely talked about or known. But he does yeah. contribute in a really interesting, wide way um, to the development of Hollywood throughout the like height of its classical era through the end of its classical era, um, which is yeah. quite, quite interesting. Yeah. So speaking of um, Tony and Maria... Alex, how do you think that the uh, the romance of this uh, this movie slash story holds up? Because those are kind of two different questions. Uh, I think the romance holds up uh, because of the. It's actually kind of relates to the way the world is built. Like the the romance is very much put into the context of the worldviews and outlooks of Tony and Maria, right? Like the fact that they. They fall for each other really quickly, but <clears throat> that's yeah. That's the biggest thing is that it's almost. That, I mean, always, it is instantaneous. Yeah, and, and then it's, it's al- there's no backsies. It's always a it's and it's always been a criticism of Romeo and Juliet. Although you know, it it's kind of like you know, well, for it to work, this must happen. Um, mm-hmm. Even though it might feel a little more ridiculous, but given both of their outlooks and they they work to do it both through the their connections to their their uh, respective gangs, how they're connected to them. They both have songs about wanting something more, wanting something different, wanting something out there, not being happy or contented. Maria doesn't want to anything to do with um, her gang or, or her uh, community's gang. And Tony's clearly left his gang. He wants something else. He wants to be on the straight and narrow. Um, it almost makes sense. They're, they're they're set up so well in the first act to fall for each other immediately that they do fall for each other immediately. It makes sense that they just like see each other like, oh, yep, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. There it is. Um, and and go for each other almost in a way that the that Romeo and Juliet aren't set up 
in the the first part of the the classical play, um, yeah. which is kind of interesting and nice. Now the things they do over the course of the movie are so dumb <laughs> that it it made me not want to root for them, but also it kind of made sense that they would do the things they did. Uh, my biggest complaint was always this time around that I noticed was when um, Maria was like, you must go to the fight. It's like, why, why do I need to go? Uh, oh, because they can't fight. It's like, why? They're just going to punch each other. Um, no, but I don't even want them punching each other. And then he goes and makes it 10 times worse. Yeah, I, I don't think that that bothered me too much because it was mostly about her wanting there to be peace and hoping that he could find a way to uh, reconcile them in, in a way that they've been reconciled. It, idealistic as that sounds, um, I can understand the sentiment, you know, from her having spent so much time watching them just like beat the crap out of each other over and over and over again. Um, so it, it, that didn't bother me too much, I think. Um, but I, I think that there are a lot of things that this film kind of does with the story of Romeo and Juliet that, that do work really well. Like for example, the, just the, just the sheer fact of adding a race element to the story, I think is probably the best way to put it in a modern societal context because, uh, you know, in Romeo and Juliet, we don't really know why the two families are feuding, but in this film, like you don't really have to explain the racism because it's like a thing and it's a problem. It's like, and, oh, racial tension. Yes, we understand. Yeah. And the fact of, you know, trying to put a reconciliation in there and then the tragedy that comes from that as like a, uh, a huge societal caveat, I think is, um, is really smart. And it's, it's, uh, it's a really interesting, again, take on Romeo and Juliet that is not often, um, you know, taken in that direction, at least not in the, in the really big adaptations that have come out over the last, uh, several decades. Um, so I, I thought that that worked really well. And then the other thing is, um, the fact that, and, and one of the things that I kept thinking of during this movie is how many times Romeo and Juliet has been redone for successive generations. So you think of between this and Greece and then even high school musical in much more recent memory. Um, and the fact that this film takes it to its full tragic conclusion and deals with all of these things, like the emotions of, uh, of losing someone like the leader of your, of your pack or your clan or gang or whatever. Um, you know, and then all of those emotions being bottled up to the point where they come out again in this really tragic conclusion, I think, um, is actually like really, uh, it's still relevant and it's almost increasingly relevant in, in today's world. Uh, in a way that I think is really interesting. Like the, the song, uh, I don't know what the song is called, but we're the cool boy song where they're cool boy. And they keep like, the song is really slow, but throughout the song, they keep going pop, pop, pop. And they like hold up, uh, finger guns. And it's kind of like the, just that one song is showing how bottling up these emotions always leads to an explosion. Uh, which is exactly what happens at the end of this movie. One, I love that that number. The cool boy number is actually one of my favorites in this movie. It's probably good. Favorite. Two, uh, I think we should release a filmings ringtone package of Jonathan going pop pop pop. <laughs> <laughs>
do it. Somebody take that audio. <laughs> uh, I'll let you sell it. I don't even care. So yeah, I think I think that this film, you know, the way that it does this adaptation of this classic story that's been told hundreds of times in different variations, uh, I think it like earns its right to have its own voice. Like it doesn't feel like a useless Romeo and Juliet adaptation, you know? Yeah, no, it doesn't feel useless. It feels interesting. It feels it, it like a recontextualized one that kind of explains what's going on a little bit better. Um, Do you want to? I didn't look up like all the races of the different um, actors. It's 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 definitely is in this one. So uh, I feel like ninety percent of the time we're talking about race. <laughs> we're talking about older movies. I know. But it's just it's just the twentieth century. It's both when we were realizing that we had problems with race. Um, and we're starting to discuss it, and we um, we still had those problems. I mean, it's not like we don't still have problems, but we've we're starting to address them as a society, um, and and figure out what what's going on. Um, it, it's just that messy period in time. Yeah. So between between Natalie Wood's Russian parents and uh, oh yeah, Natalie Wood is super Russian. So obviously, what we're talking about more directly is that Natalie Wood is cast as a Puerto Rican. Yeah, when she is not Puerto Rican, in fact, she is what you would call Caucasian in America, which is kind of like something that we only use as a term in America. I don't really know why that is, but it is. Um, and more of the, so more of the point of the uh, the the Puerto Ricans in this movie, what they talk about is that they're immigrants, not that they're not white that they're immigrants and in fact the song is like it's okay as long as you're born here uh but if you move here you oh, have it less true. yeah and what they talk about actually uh one of the things that one of the the cops starts to tease all of the boys and the jets about when they're in their uh, soda shop hangout is that all of their parents are immigrants all of them are immigrants if they're even if they're only removed by like one or two generations they're all immigrants and what the movie's kind of like driving you to is that why are you like why are all of you fighting? You've all moved here, uh, either yourself or your parents or your grandparents have moved here. You you've all elected to come here. Why are you fighting? There is no point to all any of this. Um, so, <clears throat> while it would have been nice for uh, Natalie Wood to not have been you know whitewashed cast. Um, you know, the racial the racial tones of the movie are more closely connected to immigration than they are some of the other uh, racial uh, tensions in uh, in America. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and Natalie Wood is still pretty good. There are one or two moments where she does like uh, a Latina accent, and I cringe a little bit, but <laughs> you know, a, a little bit of that is like the stylization of the period. Fun fact, uh, all of her songs were redubbed by Marnie Nixon, who is the same singer who dubbed all of Audrey Hepburn's songs from My Fair Lady. Were they really dubbed? They were dubbed, yeah. They said oh, that she crazy. would sing on set, but uh, in the end she wasn't quite good enough, so they were all, uh, all of her lines were redubbed. Wow, that's actually crazy. Yeah. Also, I didn't realize Saul Bass did the, did the credits. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely a much more simplified version. Yeah, it's of like Saul the, Bass just credits. the graffiti. 
yeah, but it is it is still a very much a Saul Bass credit. Saul Bass style. is awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, he's one of Jonathan's favorites, which is why we mention him every <laughs> chance we get. Yeah, if you don't um, remember, he did. He's done a lot of the the title sequences for the Alfred Hitchcock films and Charade, which is almost an Alfred Hitchcock film and uh, stuff like that. Just very kind of um, geometric and abstract type uh, title sequences, which is totally my jam. Yeah, yeah. Anything else to mention about West Side Story before we move to the brief overall notes for today? I don't think so. Let's do it. All right, so on to overall notes. All right, Jonathan, what do you think? Do you think romances of this size and scale can be produced outside of the studio system? I'm sure I, I would not say that they can't, you know, because all it takes is for one person to somehow get the chance to make one uh, and it to be good. And then all of us or not even to be good, but to be profitable. And then all of a sudden we're going to get like an influx of them. It hasn't happened in a while. Um, I think it's possible that it, it could happen like, um, uh, Oh crud. Who's the guy who did La La Land? Cause I feel like that kind of Damien falls Chazelle? in this. Yeah. Damien Chazelle. I feel like I was going to say he that could, La La Land is probably the closest thing to one of these movies, but even it has a kind of like production scale, much smaller. Yeah. Than any of these. But I think that the, there's also the thing where, production skills don't have to be this big anymore necessarily. Oh yeah. None um, of them are, none of them are this big, even, even like Avengers, like, or, uh, the superhero movies, which are the cl- closest in terms of sale scale and size aren't this big anymore. And it's specifically because you can paint in half of the production with a computer, yeah. which is not to say that that's cheap, but, um, the, the other thing is that, the technology is much more um, mobile. It's it's more advanced in terms of being able to capture uh, scenes on location. So sets don't have to be built for everything. Gigantic sets don't have to be built if they can be found. Um, so I think that you know it's possible for this to happen. Maybe not at the same production scale, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the same production scale. Um, I just think it takes, you know, somebody given the chance uh, and the drive to make a story like this and for enough people to connect with it. And then we could see a rise of this type of filmmaking again. Um, I feel like Damien Chazelle is is, his sensibilities seem right in line with that. Um, But that's not to say that someone else might not show up that uh, that can come up with with something like this. I, I think that this type of like the type of story of romantic tragedy is never going to go away. Uh, and so it just depends on like where those stories are going to be told. And I feel like right now those stories are being told in much more intimate uh, kinds of ways and kinds of movies um, where you really get inside people's heads rather than putting uh, kind of it's it's more of a classical type of storytelling to create a really intimate story put against a really grand epic backdrop and setting. Um, so I don't know when that may come back. Um, but I think it is interesting that all these movies that we picked that are so big, uh, and are, are focused on the romance are all tragedies. Um, what do you think of, is it about this type of movie that makes that, that attracts people to romantic tragedy rather than, uh, a romance in itself or like a, a romantic comedy or something. 
Well, these are the stories that stick with us over long periods of time, right? When you, when you, when you watch a comedy, you remember the jokes. When you watch a tragedy, you remember the message. And you remember a message, you remember the story, right? Like a comedy, you might have even some of the best comedies out there of all time. You might have a harder time connecting the story, the the dots together to remember the whole story. When you remember a tragedy, you remember the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It sticks with you a whole lot more. It is something that's just much more memorable, I think. And even like if you think about all of the best stories of all times, um, they all end badly, <laughs> like like the the myths and the fables and like the the Odysseys or the Romeo plays. Like there's there's some good comedies that um, Shakespeare wrote, right? Not the Romeo plays, yeah, the right. Shakespeare plays. Uh, but you remember the tragedies more, right? Yeah, it sticks in and your I will head. Say, just to play devil's advocate, the Odyssey isn't like necessarily a tragedy, but I mean Greek tragedy is definitely a thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, like even Shakespeare's histories are usually tragedies, um, along with that. So yeah, a lot of the, because, because they're warning stories, they are, um, they're stories meant to show us what not to do. And so when you see, when you're left with a character whose, uh, life or dreams are are left in ruins and that's what you walk out of the theater with that's something where you're like whoa i don't want that to be me what are the things that happened that led to that point because if the story was written effectively it was built on you know observation of life and things that end in these types of tragedies and so we learn from them by seeing what not to do uh and i feel like that's sometimes a lot easier to pick up on the message than to just say, say these are the things that you should do to have a happy life. Rather yeah, it's, right. th- this is what not to do in order to at least not have a tragic life. You know, we, whether, whether it's happy or not is up to you. Yeah. We learn really well by, vo- uh, by example, especially yeah. negative example. We don't, yeah, right. <laughs> we don't want that happening to us. It's much less painful than, than, uh, going through it yourself. So if you can watch someone else do it and learn the message, then that's kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah, and no, that's for sure. that's what all good fiction does. All right, Jonathan, I feel like we've got we've got, we've pretty much covered all there is to talk about today. We've talked about a lot of great trivia. We've talked about a lot of interesting stories, both of the productions and these the things they produced as well. Uh, Absolutely, a lot of we. I mean, we've talked extensively about the studio system today. This is one of our most studio system heavy episodes ever. Um, it's something that was both able to wield massive amounts of power but also really smothering, right? Like yeah. they, all of, all three projects that we talked about today were essentially birthed out of the power of the studio system, but there was a struggle to find any sense of auteurship or individual expression within any of them uh, because they're all pretty smothering. Um, but ironically, the, the influence but of the studio, good. yeah, the influence of the studio arguably is are the things that contributed to the success of the program. So this it's like this really weird um, two-edged sword kind of deal uh, that, you know, we don't even have to deal with anymore. And we, you know, we'll go on throughout history kind of uh, going back and forth about whether these, these films could have been made in the same way 
without the studio system or without the production code or if they would have been as effective. Obviously, effective films would have been made, but a lot of effective films were made because of the studio system and under the studio system. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of the reasons why we why we actually have many, many, many of the best movies ever made. Um, Absolutely. But yes, that is pretty much it for today in terms of what we talked about today. But we are not done yet. Next time on the podcast, we have our 100th episode and the finale of season three um, in which we cover what might possibly be our last Christmas episode uh, specifically about Christmas because there's only so many times you can talk about Christmas movies. Um, So we're, we're skewing it a little bit. And next time on the podcast, we are going to be talking about not quite Christmas, uh, in which we talk about a series of movies that are kind of about Christmas or set at Christmas time, but not really about Christmas directly. Um, but use so we're Christmas doing Die to Hard, their right, advantage. Alex? Oh, we've already done Die Hard, Jonathan. So what Aha. other three movies are we going to do? Uh, we're going to be, this is also going to be probably a discussion of eighties film in general, uh, because we're talking about gremlins from 1984 lethal weapon from 1987 and big from 1988, three films from completely different genres, uh, throughout the scope of the eighties, um, all kind of centering around Christmas, but not really like Christmas themes, maybe big. I don't know, yeah. but it's like this is, Christmas is there, but it's not about Christmas. Yeah, this is this is a time, the 80s were a time uh, when these genre blockbusters really started hitting the mainstream. Uh, blockbusters became a thing towards the end of the 70s. Genre blockbusters became a thing, and then uh, genre enters the mainstream, and then genre doesn't just enter, it collides with the mainstream. So now everything is a family movie, but with a twist, or yeah. a Christmas movie, but with a twist. Um, so we're going to be talking about that as well, as well as, I don't know, maybe discussing some filmings trivia or giving some hot takes throughout the podcast. I don't know. We'll figure it out, but it'll be the hundredth episode and it should be fun. Uh, Jonathan, what is up with the Patreon? If you'd like to support us, we have uh, a Patreon account and a coffee account. Um, and if you subscribe on Patreon for $5, you can get our Patreon podcast. Our last topic was Fritz Lang, and we talked about some uh, some lost films and uh, kind of talked about um, the very beginnings of film history and film preservation and that kind of stuff. Um, and then our latest Patreon commentary track at the $10 level is The Asphalt Jungle, and there will be a new one of those coming soon uh, whenever I get around to recording a new one. So that's all we got. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And I'm at the Blue Jay 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right. See ya. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, well, if I, um, you you, um, if you, um, I, um, if we, um, <laughs> us, um, you, um, some, um, all right, you take the, um, <laughs> okay. Um,